Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 20 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In the three months up to the end of October 2009, the Information Commissioner published 132 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 11. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, amongst others, we'll be discussing decisions on information contained in publication schemes, marks on documents and whether they constitute information, vexatious requests, section 35 and disclosure of ministerial letters, statistics and section 40, disclosure of bonus payments to employees and tender evaluation information. Before we go on to discuss these decisions, it's worth remembering that freedom of information hasn't done away with other legal rights to access official information. One such right is contained in Section 15 of the Audit Commission Act 1998. This gives a legal right to any person interested, for example a local council taxpayer, to inspect the accounts of a local authority as well as other named organisations, including the NHS, at the time of the annual audit for a limited period of 20 working days. This right extends to all books, deeds, contracts, bills, vouchers and receipts relating to the accounts, as well as allowing the taking of copies of all or any part of the accounts and those other documents. Section 15 goes considerably beyond the Freedom of Information Act, mainly because it's not subject to any commercial confidentiality exemptions. It came under judicial scrutiny in a recent High Court case involving the waste management company Viola and Nottinghamshire County Council. Viola brought an action for judicial review asking the High Court to block Nottinghamshire County Council's decision to release details of its multi-million pound waste management contract as well as invoices paid by the Council. This followed a request by a local waste management campaigner under the Audit Commission Act. Viola argued that inspection should not be permitted as the contract and the invoices did not relate to the local authorities' accounts. This argument was rejected by Mr Justice Cranston ruled that the words relating to in section 15 were sufficiently flexible to accommodate the documents in question. In reaching this conclusion he took account of the fact that the function of section 15 is to enable interested persons to inspect documents which reveal precisely how the local authority is spending public money. Such a function would obviously be frustrated if various contracts and invoices under which the local authority made payments to third parties were excluded from the right to inspect. Viola also argued that a wide interpretation of Section 15 would lead to confidential information in the contract and invoices being disclosed. The judge ruled that commercial confidentiality was not relevant under Section 15, which only contained one exception for personal information. This is an interesting case as it shows that not only do public authorities have to be on their guard for FOI requests for commercially sensitive information, They also have to have knowledge of the Audit Commission Act, where the right of access is much wider. By now, all public authorities will have adopted the Information Commissioner's model publication scheme for their sector. It's important to stress to staff dealing with FOI requests that information contained in the scheme should normally be disclosed as a matter of course if it's requested. In a decision involving Backwell Parish Council, dated the 2nd of September, the complainant made a request to the council for copies of bank statements for a four-month period. The Commissioner agreed with the Council 
that disclosure of some of the statements would identify the individuals who had been party to the settlement of an employment tribunal claim and so was exempt under Section 40 of the Act, being third-party personal data. The Council's bank statements were, though, listed within its publication scheme at the time of the request. The Commissioner's view was that it is possible for there to be exempt information contained within a class of information listed in an authority's publication scheme. However, in this case, by initially refusing to disclose the information in response to a request, even in redacted form, the Council failed to fulfil its commitment to publish information in accordance with its scheme and accordingly breached Section 19 of the Act. Listeners who work with or advise parish councils need to make them aware of the Act and in particular the duty to make information available in accordance with their publication scheme. Section 84 of the Freedom of Information Act defines information as information recorded in any form. This includes information held on paper, on computer, video and audio as well as that contained in manuscript notes. But what of marks made on documents? In a tribunal decision involving a Mr O'Connell and the Information Commissioner and the Crown Prosecution Service, the tribunal considered access to manuscript notes made by a defence barrister on his client's typed police interview record. The Information Commissioner was of the view that some of the notes, which were merely just marks on a document, were not information for the purposes of the Act. The tribunal rejected this submission. In its view, however tenuous and potentially misleading the material sought may be, it still constituted information, even if it was only information to the effect that certain marks had been made on certain sheets of paper held by the public authority. The tribunal did, however, rule that the requested information was sensitive personal data and there was no justification in Schedule 3 of the Data Protection Act to allow disclosure. Consequently, it was exempt under Section 40 of the Act, being third-party personal data. Section 14 does not oblige a public authority to comply with an FOI request where it's deemed to be vexatious. The Commissioner's Awareness Guidance Note number 22 identifies the characteristics which he considers as indicative of a vexatious request. These are, the request can fairly be seen as obsessive, the request has the effect of harassing the public authority or of causing distress to staff. Complying with the request would impose a significant burden in terms of expense and distraction. The request is designed to cause annoyance or disruption. And the request lacks any serious purpose or value. In the case of Mr J Walsh and the Information Commissioner, the Information Tribunal stated that in most cases, the vexatious nature of a request will only emerge after considering the request in its context and background. As part of that context, the identity of the requester and past dealings with the public authority can be taken into account. This was recently applied in an Information Commissioner decision involving Sir William Borlace's Grammar School, dated the 29th of September. The complainant made a number of requests within a six-month period concerning information relevant to a complaint made by her in December 1996. The school responded by informing her that it would not enter into further correspondence in relation to this matter, as it had been dealt with on a number of occasions by the school and also the local education authority. Subsequent to intervention by the commissioner, the school stated that it had applied Section 14 of the Act, that the request was vexatious. 
the Commissioner upheld the school's decision on the basis that the complainant's requests were indicative of a pattern of obsessive behaviour which has imposed a significant burden on the school. The Commissioner found, though, that the school breached Section 17 of the Act by its failure to inform the complainant of its application of Section 14 within the 20 working day time limit. All the school had stated initially was that it had dealt with the matter previously and that it was not prepared to enter into further discussion. This decision illustrates the importance of ensuring that the Section 17 refusal notice is served on a requester even where there's been previous correspondence outside FOI on the same issue. This will allow the applicant to be under no illusion as to the basis of the refusal. Section 17.6 does state, though, that where a refusal notice has been served previously, then one does not have to be served again. Section 35 allows information to be withheld if it relates to, amongst other things, the formulation or development of government policy. It's a class-based exemption, which means that the public authority, usually a government department, does not have to show that there would be any prejudice to the formulation or development of government policy if the information is disclosed. However, prejudice is relevant when applying the public interest test. In a decision involving the Department of Health dated the 17th of September, the department received a request for the business case on the NHS consultant's contract which it provided to the Treasury in 2002. The request also asked for a copy of the Treasury's response. Eventually, the department released its own business case, but refused to disclose the Treasury's response. It cited Section 35 1A and B, Formulation and Development of Government Policy and Ministerial Communications. The Commissioner agreed with the department that Section 35 applied. Nonetheless, he ruled that the letter from a Treasury Minister, which contained the response to the business case, must be released on public interest grounds. The Commissioner was not persuaded by the view that disclosure would affect the frankness and candour with which Ministers would debate policy issues in the future. He also highlighted the fact that the NHS consultants contract is no longer a live issue, but there is still significant public interest in whether the contract has delivered value for money. Section 40 often comes into play where public authorities receive requests for disclosure of statistics. There have been a number of decisions on this issue. The Commissioner has always ruled that truly anonymised statistics are not personal data and so Section 40 cannot be used to exempt disclosure. The test of whether statistics are truly anonymised is whether members of the public could reasonably identify the subjects by cross-referencing them with information or knowledge already available to them. The latest Information Commissioner decisions to apply this reasoning are Ealing Council and Coventry City Council dated September of this year, where the Information Commissioner ordered the release of statistics for the numbers of children who were taken into care, adopted and those placed on a special guardianship or residency order. Two recent Information Tribunal decisions, though, suggest that the Commissioner's approach is incorrect. In a decision involving the Department of Health, the Information Commissioner and the Pro-Life Alliance, dated the 15th of October 2009, the Information Tribunal had to consider an appeal from an Information Commissioner decision where the complainant made a request regarding the details of abortion statistics for 2003 where those abortions had been carried out under medical grounds. The Department of Health suppressed statistics where the number of occurrences was less than 10. It relied upon the exemption, amongst others, in Section 40 for third-party personal data.
The Commissioner ruled that the requested information was not personal data and that therefore Section 40 was not engaged. He concluded that the information was neither the personal data of doctors nor patients and there was no possibility of anyone being identified from the data nor from any information publicly available. On appeal, the Tribunal extensively analysed the House of Lords' decision in Common Services Agency and the Scottish Information Commissioner from 2008, which is widely considered to be the leading authority on disclosure of statistics. The Commissioner has always relied on this case to argue that anonymised personal data where the individual cannot be identified by the recipient is not personal data. However, the Tribunal ruled that this was not correct. The Commissioner relies on paragraph 24 and 25 of Lord Hope's judgment in the House of Lords case. However, the Tribunal ruled that what is being referred to by Lord Hope is a situation where the statistical information is so anonymised that it can no longer be cross-referenced to the other information held by the data controller, and not the situation here where the data is anonymous to the third party but can still be cross-referenced using the forms retained by the Department of Health. The Tribunal ruled that anonymised data could still be personal data in the hands of the data controller, as in this case, if there is further information in the hands of the data controller which would allow the subjects to be identified. Here it considered that the department does have other information in its possession, namely the original forms from which the statistics are derived, which can be used to trace back each statistic to an actual case and an individual. Therefore the information is personal data and so section 40 is engaged. The tribunal then had to consider though whether disclosure of the statistics would breach the data protection principles. It was satisfied that in this case it would not. In particular it took account of the lack of identifiability, fairness to the individuals, the subject's reasonable expectations and the need for scrutiny. This reasoning was also applied in another tribunal decision involving Ursula Runier and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice dated the 22nd of September. The Information Commissioner's guidance on disclosure of employee salaries states that public authorities need only disclose salary information within a £5,000 band unless any of the following exceptional circumstances arise. These are where there are current controversies or credible allegations, there is a lack of safeguards against corruption, normal procedures have not been followed, the individual in question is paid significantly more than the usual salary for their post, or the individual or individuals concerned have significant control over the setting of their own or other people's salaries. A very topical question arose in a recent decision involving the Department for Transport dated the 24th of September. Do bonus payments made to employees have to be disclosed? Listeners will be aware of the recent controversy involving the Ministry of Defence and bonus payments made to civil servants. In this case, the complainant made a request for information relating to the exact salaries and latest bonuses for each chief executive of an agency of the DFT and for the permanent secretary. The DFT explained that some of the information requested was publicly available. The 2007-2008 annual reports of the DFT and the relevant agencies contained salary information relating to the individuals concerned within a £5,000 band. 
It's therefore applied the Section 40 exemption to withhold information relating to the exact salaries and bonuses of the individuals concerned. The Commissioner agreed with this approach. He ruled that since in this case overall salaries, which include bonus payments if made, have been provided to the complainant within a £5,000 band, this provides the public with an overall picture of the amount of public money being spent and gives them an opportunity to scrutinise the decisions. Disclosure of the precise salaries and bonuses would invade the privacy of the subjects, which could not be justified. Another interesting recent decision on the application of Section 40 involves Wakefield Metropolitan District Council and is dated the 14th of October. The complainant requested information held by the council in relation to the settlement of employment tribunal proceedings brought by six former council employees under the Public Interest Disclosure Act who were dismissed for whistleblowing. In particular, he asked for the total amount paid to the former employees. The council refused to provide this information as it believed it was exempt under Section 40 in that it constituted personal data, disclosure of which would breach the first data protection principle. It also cited Section 41 on the basis that the information was provided in confidence. The Commissioner decided that neither Section 40 nor Section 41 applied. With regard to Section 40, he decided that the amount paid to the former employees was personal data as it related to them as individuals, despite the fact that the Council only held the total amount paid to the group, not the individual amounts received by each claimant. The withheld information, when coupled with that already in the public domain, revealed that each of the six complainants received part of a pot of money, the total of value of which was a defined figure. Having considered that the information was personal information, the next issue for the Commissioner was to consider whether disclosure would contravene, in this case, the first data protection principle. In other words, would it be fair and lawful? The following factors were relevant when answering this question. The existence of a compromise agreement between the parties containing a confidentiality clause. The reasonable expectations of the claimants about what would happen to their personal data. Whether the information related to their personal or private life. The position and the roles of the claimants within the Council. The legitimate interests of the public in knowing the financial impact on the Council as a result of the out-of-court settlement. The unwarranted prejudice to the rights and freedoms or legitimate interests of the claimants. Taking the above into account, the Commissioner did not believe that disclosure of this information, which did not reveal the individual amounts received, would prejudice the individual's privacy enough to outweigh the legitimate interests of the public in knowing the financial implications on the Council. The Public Interest Disclosure Act is intended to provide protection for those who, in limited circumstances, expose wrongdoing. The Commissioner felt there is a public interest in knowing how public authorities deal with claims relative to the Act, and in particular, how they treat individuals who might have rights to protection under the Act. The Commissioner also ruled that Section 41 could not be claimed, as the requested information was not obtained from another person. He drew upon the Information Tribunal's decision in Derry City Council when reaching this conclusion. In that case, the Tribunal stated that the correct position is that a concluded contract between a public authority and a third party does not fall within Section 41 of the Act. This decision demonstrates two points worthy of note. Firstly, sometimes an overwhelming public interest in scrutinising a public authority decision will require disclosure of personal data, notwithstanding the fact that such a disclosure will have an effect on the privacy of the data subject. 
Secondly, information contained in contracts or other jointly created documents cannot be withheld on the basis of Section 41, as it is not information obtained from another person. When it comes to public sector contracts, it's now common for aggrieved bidders, as well as other interested parties, to make an FY request for information which will give them an insight into how the bids were evaluated and what scores each bidder received. In Fred Keane and the Information Commissioner and the Central Office of Information, dated the 14th of September, a tribunal decision, the appellant requested tender evaluation forms in respect of all those who submitted bids to the COI for providing reprographic services. In all, there were 14 tenderers and 28 evaluation forms completed by two evaluators. In response to his request, the appellant was given his own company's evaluation information, but not of others, on the grounds that it was commercially sensitive under Section 43. The tribunal analysed all the information contained in the evaluation forms. It ruled that Section 43 was not engaged, either as prejudicing the bidder's commercial interests or those of the public authority. It noted that the forms were not an assessment of the bidder's performance or the quality of their work. They did not contain what might properly be regarded as commercially sensitive information. For example, they contained almost no price information or financial data except for limited references to turnover in the comments and notes section. Such information would, in any event, be publicly available from sources such as Companies House. The key part of the evaluation form simply contained a score for each bidder against certain criteria. A number of those criteria were clearly specific to the public authority. There was no evidence before the tribunal that as far as reprographic suppliers were concerned, the public authority's criteria were likely to be the same or similar to other buyers of such services, such that any negative assessment by the public authority would have the prejudicial effect that was claimed. The tribunal also took account of the fact that, as at the date of the request, the disputed information was almost two years old, and the information on the basis of which the applicants were assessed, for example size of company and client list, may well have changed. The tribunal also noted the existence of the FOI Civil Procurement Policy and Guidance document published by the Office of Government Commerce relating to requests for civil procurement under the Act. This is available from the OGC website www.ogc.gov.uk. Whilst it's not legally binding, the tribunal noted that its decision was consistent with the guidance which, in this case, the public authority had failed to follow. The guidance contains, amongst other things, a number of working assumptions set out in the Annex, which provides an initial view for officials who are responsible for responding to FOI requests, whilst at the same time emphasising the need to consider the circumstances of each case. Several of the working assumptions cover procurement-related information. The assumption, as regards tender evaluation information, is that such information will generally be released in relation to both successful and unsuccessful bidders, including rankings, except where the information is sensitive or there are security concerns. The OGC guidance also indicates that tender information is only to be regarded as sensitive during the actual tender phase. This is another important decision for procurement professionals and their advisers. It shows that when receiving requests for tender information, there must be a careful examination of the contents of documents to ascertain exactly what the prejudicial effect of disclosure will be. Assumptions cannot be made on the basis of the nature of the documents. It's the contents which are important. 
Regard must also be had, especially by government departments, to the OGC guidance mentioned above. I'm going to be examining this as well as other procurement-related cases in my next Freedom of Information and Commercial Confidentiality workshop, which is going to be held on the 8th of December in Manchester. If you'd like to know more, please go to the ActNow website, which is www.actnow.org.uk. That concludes episode 20 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in February next year. Don't forget that ActNow Training is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB Certificate in Freedom of Information. Next year's courses will be held in Manchester, Edinburgh, Belfast and London throughout the year. If you'd like to know more, please have a look at the ActNow website or email info at actnow.org.uk. ActNow Training also offers a Freedom of Information helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI as well as your environmental information requests and possible responses. Through the helpline I'll be available to guide you through the relevant area of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the ActNow FOI helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye 